Romantic relationships these days are so dumbed down, they're so superficial, people want more. Deeper intimacy, authentic connection, better sex, finding sustainable partnership, cutting through the confusion, weeding out the deceitful people, finding and navigating the highest romantic relationship on your path. Welcome to the Relationship Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Devin Loomis. What if you had the opportunity to sit down and pick the mind of a very wise doctor of oriental medicine? I just got done doing that. And what if I told you that in the state of New Mexico, doctors of oriental medicine under board certification are able to prescribe hormones? The title of this show is Sex, Desire, and Hormones, and everything in our environment, especially our food, is affecting our hormones these days. And unfortunately, most people are going to regular MDs for their hormone testing, and most MDs do not know how to really truly prescribe and what to look at when doing hormone replacement therapy. So we talked about hormones. We talked about everything that came up, nutrition. We talked about sacred sexuality. We went deep with Dr. Glenn Wilcox, who is a specialist in parasites. He consults with people all over the country, and he's an expert in this field, not just parasites, but oriental medicine in general and hormone replacement therapy. So I learned a lot, just like these other shows, but also I found a soul brother. I mean, really like a deep connection here, a lot of similarities on our paths. And uh, it was a great bonding experience, and I look forward to it. We're going to do another show just on sacred sexuality on spiritual sex but this show is packed in joy dr glenn yeah thank you so much for coming on my pleasure it's great to be here let's talk about sex desire and hormones excellent i'm ready where you want to start <laughs> uh let's start with um how about you tell me a little bit about what wh what's your professional what what you do okay good so simple terms simple story I was called to a career in energy medicine back in the early 70s, 45 years ago. Profound experience. Um, I can talk about that at length, but we'll leave that for another day. And so I set out at the, at, to find out what that was. Back then, it didn't exist. And so um, that led me to California where I began my study and then to New Mexico. And I uh, moved here in 78 to continue my study. And basically started out with a career in oriental medicine, doing acupuncture, uh, qigong, hands-on energy work, massage, manipulation, herbal medicine, and over the decades have evolved that in New Mexico to something called expanded practice. And I kind of led the way to doctors of oriental medicine being able to be certified in intravenous therapy, injection therapy, and bioidentical hormone therapy. Is that unique to this state? Yeah, yeah, it's very unique to this state. Other states are starting to move in that direction, taking New Mexico as a role model with injection therapy, but so far I don't think anybody's doing IV therapy or the bioidentical hormone therapy. Huh, Yeah. wow. So, so with advanced training and board certification, doctors of oriental medicine in New Mexico can do all these things legally and safely, and we have an amazing track record since 1997. That's yeah. when you got involved and started. What, what sparked that interest of, of integrating that? So, as I said, the original calling was to energy medicine, uh -huh. and acupuncture is really a, a one aspect of energy medicine that evolved in the Orient uh, over uh, uh, many centuries. Um, and what I was inspired to do was to 
integrate into that very traditional solid practice some of the cutting edge biomedicine that has evolved in Western medicine. And so that's where the IV therapies come in. You, with IV therapies that are naturally based, you can uh, jumpstart cell respiration, which is taking in oxygen and sugar and, and essential fats and turning that into ATP in the mitochondria. You may know that term, mm -hmm. adenosine triphosphate, the energy molecule of life. That's what we need to do muscle energy work and brain function energy work. So starting to try and figure out how do we take this to another level at the cellular level was part of what inspired me. That, it, it sounds, when I heard that you did this, it sounded really radical to me. Uh-huh. And it, 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 I, f I felt initially like there would have been a lot of resistance to this in the, in the oriental medicine field. Was there? Uh, well, when we did it, there was real... Um, a harmonious group of people in the profession and the elders kind of led the way and we created what was uh, an umbrella that people who wanted to just do a traditional practice could in fact do that no problem and people who wanted to evolve it could also however subsequently over the years there has been sort of a backlash and there is a group of very traditional fo traditionally focused doctors of oriental medicine who don't like at all the idea of evolving it into the 21st century as we've done. Mm. So yeah, like in most professions, there is this um, little bit of a struggle between folks in conventional medicine, it's the same thing. People are doing very conventional, medical doctors doing very conventional practices and others doing a little more cutting edge integrative practice. Functional medicine is evolving in medicine as, a, as more of a cutting edge uh, aspect. The same things happened in chiropractic, naturopathic medicine. Every, every uh, field of medicine has their, their camps. So what initially sparked the interest in, in bioidentical hormones? So um, bioidentical and hormones. And what are they? So let, yeah, let's start there. So hormones. Hormones are essential for human life and energy, okay? And they're substances that are produced in a gland primarily, um, and then they're transported, usually through the blood, but can be by other means, to another area, and they have an effect on tissues and cells in that other area. So in our bodies, we have... Hence drive, sex drive, yes, vitality. Yes, so there, there's, a, there's a bunch of hormones in the body. Some of the main ones would be um, the sex hormones, estrogens, there's three, progesterone, testosterone. Both men and women have all three of those, just in different proportions. So those are called the sex hormones. There are adrenal hormones, especially the ones produced by the adrenal cortex, DHEA and cortisol. And uh, uh, cortisol is a major energy hormone. I didn't you know that. Yeah, if you don't have enough of it, you're like in bed and just can't get motivated in the morning. And if you've got too much of it, you're too jacked up, maybe high blood pressure and, and issues like that. DHEA is an interesting hormone. It's a precursor for testosterone and estrogen. So when women enter menopause and their ovaries stop making those hormones, the adrenal glands production of DHEA is where those hormones come from. So if the adrenals are good and happy and functioning, less problems. If they're not, more problems. There's other pieces to the equation, but that's a huge piece of it. 
you can have uh, other important hormones, certainly, that, you know, the, the pancreas produces insulin and sugar metabolite, metabolization is huge. Thyroid. The thyroid produces a couple of different hormones. T4 is the main one, but it's not active. It's converted into T3 in your body. And that's what produces energy, keeps you warm, uh, helps you not be depressed, keeps you, uh, uh, your hair thick and good. And if it gets uh, deficient, your hair gets thin, your skin gets dry, you get low energy, you get cold, you, on and on, okay? So the thyroid is really critical as well. So my, uh, in my practice, I focus on all those. It's like a symphony of hormones that you want to orchestrate so that they're all working harmoniously. Many docs are just focusing on one area. Maybe they just look at thyroid, or maybe it's just the sex hormones, and they start working on that. Yeah. Okay, but if you're not taking the whole symphony into consideration, you don't get the results that could be even working. Could be possible. So yeah, for me, with when I started noticing that there could be a low testosterone issue with me, mm -hmm. and I went to endocrinologist, that was all that was looked at was just the sex hormone. Yes, and just testosterone, right? Um, or did they look they at estrogen? They looked at estrogen. T no, actually, that was all that they... Um, I would say... Uh, I think... I can't really remember. Okay. So here, here's an important piece because what it, ordinarily conventional medical doctors would only look at testosterone in a man, okay? But in a man or a woman, that testosterone gets changed or aromatized into estrogen mm -hmm. and if that's happening too much problems occur men start to put on weight they get breasts they develop uh, it can be a factor in in the development of prostate issues and prostate cancer so if you're not looking at that complete symphony you're missing some of the pieces of the equation and that's not good so you go oh your testosterone's low let's put you on some testosterone and you go, well, it's not really helping, but I'm getting these breasts. And, you know, that it, because they didn't look at the whole picture. So that's, that's a really important piece that needs to be brought out. There's other pieces, too, that um, come down to the way that hormones are tested. You probably had a blood test, correct? Mm -hmm. So blood tests are great. They're very useful. It's the standard of care in medicine. But hormone tests can be even more valuable and really done properly are the gold standard. When you do a hormone test using urine, you can also test for the metabolites or the breakdown products of those hormones. So as the hormones are used, they're broken down or metabolized primarily in your liver, and those metabolites are eliminated from your body or recycled. Some of those metabolites are good and anti-carcinogenic even, and some of them are bad and pro-carcinogenic. So if you're not looking at the metabolites as well as the hormones, you could be giving someone hormone therapy and causing more problems than you, were, uh, than you had before. So once again, it's really uh, uh, important to look at the full picture, okay? Now, urine testing, why is it not done? Well, it's just, it's relatively new. Um, I use a lab up in uh, Washington, Meridian Valley. The medical director of the lab, Dr. Jonathan Wright, 
was the first MD to use bioidentical hormones in America. There's that word again, bioidentical hormones. He was the first one to start using bioidentical estrogens and has evolved it. And he's the med medical director of that lab. Why is that important? That's probably the, that's what's going through your mind right now, right, Devin? I'm still trying to sift out what's the difference between, you know, just the traditional, pres traditionally prescribed hormones and bioidentical. Exactly. So let's get into that. Bioidentical hormones are hormones that are the same chemically as the hormones produced by a human body. Okay. And one would think, well, duh, that's all that should be used. That's just sort of common sense, isn't it? Well, not in medicine. In medicine, mostly non-bioidentical or alien, foreign, synthesized hormones have been used. And those hormones were used for a few reasons. And here's where it starts. When, uh, when you look at natural substances, um, there's, uh, it, it, one cannot patent a natural substance, okay? And hormones are considered natural substances. So a big pharmaceutical company can't get a patent on a natural substance. They could get a patent on maybe a specific delivery system, but not on the hormone itself, okay? So what they did back in the day was start to create analogs or uh, substances that were really close to the natural bioidentical hormone, but a little off so they could get a patent on it. Why would they want to have a patent on the hormone? Well, currently, estimates are it costs somewhere between one and five billion, with a B, dollars, to get FDA approval of a new drug. So you want to have some way of recouping your investment, and if you don't have a patent, anybody can use it, so they don't do that. Well, I have a question for you. So yeah. going back into back in the day, yeah. when they were using it in... Russia, or when they were using it in pre-World War uh, to Germany. Yes. What were they using then? Because that wasn't the pharmaceutical industry. So it has evolved over time. And so they, you know, in the beginning, they were, they were um, probably using some natural hormones in those, in those countries. But when you move into the United States, these other uh, foreign hormones okay. started to be developed um, because of the pharmaceutical industry and the way it's crafted in America. What's the, what's the production process look like for bioidentical hormones? Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to vary from hormone to hormone. Okay. So um, here, let, let's go back and just start um, where there was a real watershed. Okay. Um, uh, somewhere around 2002, major watershed event, there was a giant study called the Women's Health Initiative. And it was about 15 years, 160,000 women, one of the biggest studies ever done with women and healthcare in history. And they were looking at hormone replacement therapy, and they were using two primary hormones, estrogens and progesterone. However, they didn't use human bioidentical estrogens and progesterone. They used something called Premarin, which back then was the biggest selling drug in the world. Premarin was um, manufactured from pregnant mare's urine, Premarin, okay? And Premarin contains estrogens that pregnant horses have, not human beings. And even regular horses don't have that 
those estrogens. So they're really specific estrogens that no human woman had ever had in her. That's what they were using. There was a lot, it was, I guess, inexpensive. You could get the hormones from, just collect you know, all this uh, horse urine from wherever and, and get the hormones from it. So that was one, the, the estrogen side of what was being used. And the other side was progestin. And that sounds a lot like progesterone, but it's not. It's similar to progesterone, but changed, and they called it progestin. And so they used these two alien hormones, did this giant study, and stopped it around 2002 because they found, uh-oh, women on hormone replacement therapy using those substances had increased risk of breast cancer, heart disease, strokes, blood clots, uh, urinary incontinence. So they went, this is not good. Hormones are bad. Hormone replacement therapy is bad. No. Bioidentical hormones, human men and women have had those forever, yeah, yeah. right? And if you're using them in the right way, doing the right testing, as I just indicated before, making sure they're not metabolizing things improperly, they can be very, very safe. Unfortunately, this study came to a conclusion that hormone replacement therapy is bad. The conclusion really should have been, no, alien hormone replacement therapy is bad. But they, don't ha they did not do a giant study on bioidentical hormones yet. Okay? So At that point, or they still haven't? They still have not done a, a big study on that. That needs to be done. So the, the result was medical doctors stopped prescribing the best-selling drug in history, and women's breast cancer rates started going down. Things improved, okay? Now, interestingly, Premarin is starting to sneak back. I see ads now for Premarin, and eh, it's, it's starting to sneak back. Not a good thing. So there needs to be a little bit of wisdom in the use of hormones and a little bit of common sense, and I think that's been lacking. Between you and I, what I just told you just makes total common sense. Why wouldn't they use hormones that are the same as we have? But they didn't, okay? And there were reasons, as I just explained. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, along comes Jonathan Wright, and one of his female patients, here's the story. Jonathan Wright is one of my mentors. Awesome teacher, awesome, really smart doc. One of his female patients back in the day, a few decades ago, goes, I don't want these hormones that you're, you want to prescribe for me. I want ones that are the same as my hormones. And he went, well, that's not available. And so he started to, he was inspired by this woman to go, okay, let's figure this out. And that's where it started. It's kind of cool. Yeah, and so that has evolved now. So more and more medical doctors are starting to become aware, oh, this is important. This should be studied and done. But it's not the standard of care in medicine. More and more doctors in other areas, naturopaths, are starting, are, are going, oh yeah, bioidentical hormones. Doctors of Oriental Medicine in New Mexico, we led the way for bioidentical hormones. Back in 1997, we were the first profession to, to even mention it in our scope of practice. Nobody else had. So, so for over, what, 22 years now, we've, we've led the way in this area. So... As an example, I'm on testosterone cypionate. Okay. Uh, what would be the difference between that, other than it's a synthetic hormone, and a, a testosterone identical, bioidentical hormone? So how are you applying it? 
injection sub subcutaneous. There you go. Okay, good. So that would real, be real quick. I started off with with the cream. With the cream, it did, and I was doing an eight percent cream at like eight pumps a day. Eight pumps a day. Wow. And it, it didn't, didn't do anything. Didn't do hardly do anything. For yeah, me. yeah, yeah. And so, and it was a cream. Uh huh. And then you went to the injection. How, right. What's, well, what's, initially I started with uh, Clomid. Which uh, I guess is supposed to stimulate the not your testosterone production. Uh huh. And it, I got a, a, an improvement with that, but it was just a very minuscule. small, minuscule, and it's an expensive drug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then that's when I switched to the cream. Very little effect. Injections, perfect. Good. And how frequently are you doing the injections? Every four days, I'm splitting Good. it. Good. Okay. Because I think the half life is like about four days, right? Exactly. So. Um, in, men do get great results from injections, notable result. And the risk of course is that you'll get a, and you're, you're wise to do it every four days. Some men are doing it once a week and then you get this kind of whoop rise right. and then dip yeah. by doing it every four days. You're evening that out a little bit, but you're still going to be getting a little bit of an up down. Uh -huh. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. I haven't. Okay, good. So that's great. Now, giving yourself an injection every four days, that testosterone's pretty thick stuff. You got to use a fairly big needle to do it. I use just a 26 gauge. Is that, it's, and that does it okay? Yes, yeah, okay. do it subcutaneously. Yeah. It only takes a couple seconds. Cool. So that's a, a, a good way to do it. However, you are using the cream on your skin. Uh -huh. Let's talk about that. Okay. So you can apply either a cream or a gel. Gels have some alcohol in them. Sometimes gels are absorbed a little better through the skin. Actually, I tried that one first. Uh -huh. You know what's interesting about that? They prescribed me some like 1% gel, Andro gel. I don't know what it was. It was a pharmaceutical uh, brand. Yeah, yeah, the brand stuff. The brand stuff. Yeah. And it was when I got dry, they, my insurance company cut it off. Yeah. And I started on this when I was about like, it was younger than 30. So my testosterone levels were really low at a young age. Uh -huh. I think it was partially due to abusing steroids when I was younger than that. It could have been, I don't know. For bodybuilding. Yeah. yeah, yeah but yeah. Um, I, I started with the gel initially when they cut it off. It was like five or $800 a month. Yeah, crazy. And I didn't even know that a compound pharmacy could have made the same thing for 50. Yeah, exactly. So here's, here's something that most docs don't pay attention to or don't know. And that is that the skin is not a great way to apply hormones. People are doing it all the time. Docs are doing it all the time. It's been sort of the standard of care for a long time. But the hormones are not well absorbed through the skin, whether you're using a gel or a cream, and you build up a resistance. The skin builds up a resistance, so you have to keep switching the site. Really? Yeah. Huh. Now, there's another interesting little tidbit here, and that is don't apply it to hairy skin. Because you will aromatize that testosterone into estrogen more if you apply it to hairy areas. So recently there was a, a new testosterone product applied to your underarm. I saw that. And not, not so good maybe, huh? Because that testosterone will then convert into estrogen more than if you applied it to a non-hairy area. But still, as I said, you build up a resistance no matter what, and it's not as well absorbed. Where is it well absorbed? Mucous membranes. So where are there mucous membranes you could use? On a woman, there are two sites, and on a man, there is one site. So a woman could apply it to her labia or inside the vagina or even on the clitoris, and a man can apply it up the butt, <laughs> right? Okay. And so many men go, oh, I don't know about that, but it's a great, easy way to do it. You've got mucous membranes in there, 
And if you apply the cream, never the gel. The gel has alcohol in it. It'll burn those mucous membranes. Okay, so never gel. Use cream. When you say mucous membranes, I think of no nostril. Yeah, so you could apply it there, but you don't want to be applying a bunch of cream into your nose. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah. but, um, so, but you know, I would imagine it could be a good area, but uh, you know the the. <laughs> The anal route into the into the mucous membranes of the mem- of the okay. rectum is easy and a great thing to do. Now, we can get into this topic too, which is prostate issues, because for a man, you're applying this cream up inside the anus. It's a perfect opportunity to just do a little prostate massage on yourself every day. Men need to do that. There is an epidemic of prostate issues from just enlarged prostates to prostatitis to prostate cancer in men of all ages, and it's becoming more of an issue with younger men. We men need to start to learn how to take care of our prostates, and our partners need to learn, too, to make that part of our sexual practice. So what does the massage do? So you're, you're, just like anything, you're massaging this prostate gland, and that's going to keep circulation stimulating through it so that you're improving function. So, so, so what do you attribute this, this, the, the issues with the prostate to? Because I know that the, for a long time there was, a, and even when my doctor prescribed testosterone, he's like, there's an issue with prostate. And, and I looked into the studies, and they were quoting a study from, it was a really limited study from yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. the 70s. Again, there's this kind of uh, inherited belief system in medicine. Now, interestingly, if you go to Europe, it's very different. In America, they take you off, make sure you got no testosterone, you got a prostate cancer. Oop, no testosterone, maybe some uh, therapy to cut off your, pro- uh, your testosterone and increase your estrogen production. My cousin had to go through that. He said he, just, he suddenly had great empathy for women. He started crying at commercials, and it was like he said it was dramatic what it did to his emotions. Dramatic. So, but in Europe, they will often use testosterone for can- uh, prostate cancer therapy, okay? So, here is my experience. Let me back up a little bit. Since 1980, I've specialized in treating parasites and other bacteria, yeasts, fungi in the human body, especially in the the intestines. But I look at, I send specimens of all kinds of human fluids, uh, uh, urine, stool, sputum, blood, whatever, to a lab in Africa where they will look at it and tell me what's in there. Are there parasites in there? Are there bacteria in there? Is there some kind of fungal issue in there? So... For men with prostate issues... Real quick, you're not able to find a similar lab in the U.S.? Nobody in the U.S. is doing anywhere near the competent work that this world-class lab is doing in Africa. Huh. They're not doing it in medicine. It's, it's weird that that's not happening. A person with a microscope looking at a specimen who's expert in identifying things, taking the time to go through the procedures to do it, that's not happening in America. I agree. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Look at anything. Oh, I've got a major lung infection and I'm coughing up this green stuff. Has anybody ever gone, oh, let's look at that under a microscope and find out what it is? No. They just kind of grope in the dark and go, oh, why don't you try this antibiotic yeah. and come back in 10 days and let's see how you're doing. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's fast. Is that good science? No. It, 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 it baffles me why it's not being done. 
Okay. Yeah. So in terms of prostate, I send off specimens of urine and semen to the lab. You would not believe what shows up in men's semen, especially really? men with prostate issues. So why is that important? If you've got some chronic low-level infection, maybe it gets extreme and you get prostatitis and then they go, oh, here, try some antibiotics. But oftentimes it's not just bacteria. It's a yeast problem. It's a candida albicans yeast problem that's causing inflammation, a, a, a yeast infection. Maybe there's a bacterial infection too. Inflammation is the result. What happens when you get inflamed? You swell, okay? And then this whole prostate thing begins. Maybe there's mutation of cells. Who knows? Is that part of it? I don't know. I do know this. Men with prostate issues almost always have something going on in that fluid that's an infection of some sort. Huh. And it's being ignored and not taken care of. Okay? So um, can there be other reasons for the prostate to get enlarged? Absolutely. If you're, so you want to get rid of infection, you want to massage that little gland so it goes, yeah, I like this. I'm going to bring in the nutrients I need to be healthy. I'm going to get rid of my waste products, right? Instead of being all kind of locked up and stagnant. Now, there are other things you can do besides massaging it. Um, you can um, uh, uh, use uh, uh, Kegel exercises. You know what Kegel exercises mm -hmm. are, right? They teach women how to do Kegel exercises uh, during their pregnancy so that their childbirth is better. Kegel exercises can help a, a woman firm up her vagina, have more control over the muscles of the vagina. For a man also, Kegel exercises are stimulating to the prostate. I've never heard that. Yeah, can be excellent for that. You're basically contract a Kegel exercise for those who don't know. You're contracting the pubococcygeal muscle, which can is the muscle that controls uh, your control of urine. For example, if you're peeing and have to stop, boom, that's the pubococcygeal muscle that you're using to do that. So you just pretend like you're peeing and stopping it. That's a that's one Kegel. So you just repeat those. So that can stimulate that whole. Uh, pelvic floor area and your prostate and help it that way. Um, it can also be very beneficial for men to learn how to have better, longer lasting erections and control the erections. So talk about how, that, how the prostate can affect that. How the prostate can affect erections. Erection, yeah. So the prostate, if, it, it's difficult without an anatomical chart, but if you go online, I guess you could find an anatomical chart. Um, you know, the, the, uh, uh, right below the bladder is the prostate gland that wraps around the urethra and is right at the base of the penis, okay? So there is this little neighborhood down there. There's other glands down there too, but this little neighborhood where um, if there's congestion of blood, of fluids, uh, if there's swelling, then that's going to interfere this very delicate circulation of blood into the penis, which is the key to erections, right? So as we talk about the whole subject matter here, we're sort of into hormones deep, but sex, desire, and hormones. As we get into the sexual function aspect, that function is composed of a few different pieces. Yep, hormones are important, and everybody goes, oh, testosterone, it's all about, no, it's not about, that's just one aspect of the whole thing. That's, yep, a, a part of your, a man's libido and a woman's libido. But circulation in and out of the penis is the, uh, another critical piece, and that's blood flow. 
So if that blood flow is restricted by whatever, some inflammation in the prostate, some swelling of tissue around, um, off into the surrounding areas around it, then the ability to get an erection is compromised. Now, the ability to get an erection is closely tied to the production of nitric oxide. Not nitrous oxide, laughing gas, but nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is produced in our blood vessels by the endothelium, the lining of the blood vessel, and it is a substance that um, uh, very quickly causes the blood vessel muscle wall, the uh, smooth muscles of the blood vessel to relax. When they relax, they expand, more blood flow occurs. That's how Viagra works, by keeping more of that nitric oxide in circulation. There are things you can do to improve nitric oxide production, which would also benefit sexual function. So, um, yeah, Such as? you could go to Viagra or whatever, uh, but there are other ways to improve Such that as? too. So, um, there are products on the market that um, use uh, an extract of beets. Neo 40 is one that I use a lot, NEO 40. And it's a very proven nitric oxide booster. And you can even get little strips that you just dip, get some saliva on. It'll tell you where your nitric oxide production is. Is it low? Is it okay? Is it uh, How accurate are those though? Because I had a lot of, uh, I did the pH testing with pH those. pH testing, yes. And I found them very, uh, they, they fluctuated so much. So, and I, I mean, my diet was consistent, sleep, everything was consistent. And those, the, the swab, the saliva tests were just really inconsistent. It was a saliva test, yeah. okay? Because you can look at blood, you can look at urine. Um, so that's going to be fluctuating a lot throughout the day, saliva especially. It might be a little more accurate if you were doing urine. Okay. The pH testing for urine because um, I think uh, probably saliva is going to vary a little more. You can look at all of them. But I think they're pretty accurate, the, the strips are, for testing nitric oxide. Okay. Okay. So we got into nitric oxide because it's one of the factors in sexual function. Then there's hormones, testosterone being just one of them. And then there is the, the, the great undiscussed area, hormone receptors. So hormones are taking a signal to a cell, to a tissue that says, hey, do something, mm -hmm. right? The tissue has to receive that. If the, tissue to, if the receptors on the tissue aren't good, then it goes, yeah, so what, Mr. Hormone? What are you trying to tell me? I can't hear you, right? Mm -hmm. So there are ways to improve those receptor tissues. And I think a lot of the, quote, um, aphrodisiac type products on the market, some of them, yes, will boost production of testosterone, but some of them are not doing that. They're uh, improving the receptor site side of the equation. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So ginseng might be a great example of that. It's been used traditionally in in uh, in the in Asia as part of you know virility enhancement. Huh. And I think that's a big piece of how it's working. So prostate health. Let me tell you a story. Um, because there's probably people out there who are in just wanting to um, improve their sacred sexuality and the quality of their sexual relationship with their partner. And there are others who are going, oh my goodness, I've got a serious health problem here with my prostate. How do I deal with that? So we're talking about first starting with looking at 
the, the semen and finding out if there's some kind of infection there. Very important. There are other factors. As I said, I specialize in treating parasites. If you've got a parasite infection in your intestines, and it's much more common in America than people realize. It's kind of the elephant in the room in American healthcare. We can certainly get into that if we don't run out of time today or another day. Um, but parasites are in the same they're they're in the same neighborhood as all this plumbing going on down here, right? You got your your intestines right down there, and your bladder, and the prostate, and and your it's all the same area. So if there is a parasite infection or a bacterial infection and the waste products of that infection are into the circulatory system, into the lymphatic system, all in that area, it's going to impact the function of all, everything down there. It's like a beautiful lake got blocked up, the river out of the lake got blocked up by a falling tree or rocks or something and it's backed up and now it's a swamp. If you got a swamp going on, how are how is it you got good circulation? You got to get that circulation going in. So parasites can be a huge part of it, and that's usually not talked about ever. Um, hardly, ever, yeah. yeah. So I'll give you an example. Real My quick, day. before that example, what, what do yeah. you attribute the the issue with prostates in in our society today to? Um, what do you uh, think is the biggest contributing the issue? The biggest contributing issue, um, I think. Goodness. If we look at our diet in America generally, it is terrible. It's, it, it's poison. It's def, you know, our food has been poisoned. We're going, oh, yeah, fine, GMOs, you know, it's pesticides, more. whatever. Sure, yeah, d we trust you, authorities. You wouldn't let us, you know, take a bad step for sure. No, we've got to take control of it and say we need good quality food and good quality water. Our water is also polluted. Yes, okay? oh, yeah. So. That is essential, one. Two, sleep. Here's a great little tidbit. <laughs> when there's a, a European study, for every hour less than eight hours of sleep a night that a person gets, their testosterone goes down 12%. So if you sleep six hours a night instead of eight hours a night, your testosterone is 20, 24% lower than it should be, okay? so. That's a huge piece. But then you start looking at what are the other issues, the stress, and how does that affect our prostates and our health? They've done studies comparing Europeans to Americans. Americans have 30% more stress hormones circulating in their bodies than Europeans do. We have a society that's based on doggy dog stress. If you're having to get eight hours of sleep a night, you're a a, a sissy yeah. and, a, and a lazy yeah. person, yeah. right? Yeah. No, we've got to turn that around or we're going to suffer. So stress is an issue. We already are. We are. Yeah. 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 Don't let me get started on our healthcare system. Oh, man. That's a whole other thing. We could just go down a rabbit hole on the food. I mean, I walk into a grocery store and I almost got to just walk out. Exactly. I totally agree with yeah. you. Yeah. So you have to start there. What about, uh, what other factors are there? Toxic metals. Let's look at toxic metals for just a moment. So um, it is being used less and less, but silver fillings in our teeth are 50% mercury. So if you've got silver fillings in your teeth, those fillings are 50% mercury. The most toxic substance just about known to man except for radioactive materials. I'm going to tell you a great story. I had all my amalgam fillings, those silver fillings, removed back in the 80s. In the 90s, one of my patients was the top metal expert in America. He worked at Sandia Labs, the national lab here in Albuquerque. 
I asked him point blank, so what about these silver mercury amalgam fillings in people's mouths? Are they stable and safe? He literally started laughing. And I said, what's up? He said, no, they're not safe. I said, well, how come the dentists don't know this? He said, they've never asked. And he thought, in his opinion, they didn't want to know. There's just too much of a liability issue there. So I said, well, the American Dental Association says they've done studies that show it's stable and safe. Well, what about that? He said, BS. Those studies were never done. They say they were done. You will never find them. He brought me a stack of paper, three inches thick, every study ever done. Not stable, not safe, not stable, not safe. So that mercury is leaching into Why our Why would bodies. they have mercury in those? It makes for a, an amalgam product that's easy to okay, use. Okay, okay. You add other metals, it's half mercury. You know, you, have you ever played with mercury when you were a kid? Uh-huh. Weird stuff. Yeah. You're, not, you're not supposed to, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we, we did. Um, and so that mercury, uh, they would use that as sort of like the glue to make this amalgam uh, product. Once it was in place, it became firm and stayed there for a long time. Easy, cheap, great. Except totally toxic. And that toxicity has leached into our bodies. And it affects every aspect of us, our immune system, our nervous system, our energy, our vitality, our brain, on and on. Okay. What are the ways of heavy metals getting in? Uh, lead is a huge one, especially for folks who are 40 years, and, uh, 40 years old or older, okay? My generation, leaded gasoline was everywhere. Uh, if you're in your late 30s, somewhere in there, they, uh, they stopped using leaded gasoline. But people older than that, have been exposed to high levels of lead from gasoline. And that's just circulating in our bodies. When you're young, that affects um, the development of the brain. When we get older, it's mostly accumulated in our bones and bone marrow and affects our ability to make blood cells. So it can be another piece of the equation. So that's something I do for many years. It's conven in conventional medicine, it's uh, frowned upon, although there are very solid studies, the TACT study, T-A-C-T study, showed that chelation therapy, removing these metals, was very helpful for cardiovascular issues. It was totally ignored by the, by the, the medical professionals. Okay, just sidelined. I, I saw, I watched a, a study, it wasn't a study, it was a show one time where they took a family that was living off the grid in like Montana, uh -huh. far away from all the contaminants of, of inner city and then they took of an inner city and then they took a family from an inner city and they tested their blood yeah and they had almost the same levels of all the toxins uh-huh interesting so so i mean it, it's, so it's here's here let's let's step back and go okay what's uh what's the blood good for testing those toxins stay in your blood for a limited amount of time 24 hours, maybe 48, and then they're sequestered. They're stuck somewhere. Our body goes, we don't want these in the blood. Let's stick them in the fat or in the kidneys or wherever, okay? So blood is not a good indicator of low, the, the lifetime load of toxic uh, accumulation. It's an indicator for what you got exposed to in the last 24 hours, okay? Okay, that's a useful thing if you're getting exposed right now. But if they wanted to really do that test well, they would have used a provoked urine test, or there are other tests too, that would have looked at, well, hold on now, what's, what's hiding out down beneath the surface? What has been pushed into your tissues, into your organs? You know, what's hiding out, mm -hmm. okay? So that's where 
studies can be deceptive. And that's where I would go, well, let's look at that study. How did they do it? Mm. What was it really showing? Okay. Make sense? Yep. Yeah. So there could have been really a, under, the, under the rug of those folks, those city dwellers, there could have been this giant load of, of toxins that they just never really got to. I don't know the study, so I can't say, but yeah, yeah, yeah. that happens a lot. Make sense? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Bio, I'm still stuck on the bioidentical hormones. I'm still not understanding what the, like where they're derived. So like, oh, so where do they come from? Yeah, like testosterone okay. is an example. So if I were to come to you and say, like, I want to switch from what I'm doing to bioidentical testosterone, yeah. what would so, that process look like? So the, the, um, the hormones are made from different substances. Okay, let's, let me just uh, try and uh, simply clarify it. Bioidentical hormones are hormones that are the same chemically as a human being has. They can come from a, uh, they can be natural bioidentical hormones or they can be synthesized bioidentical hormones. So an example of a natural bioidentical hormone would be armor thyroid. Maybe you've heard of armor thyroid. No. I'm sure some of your listeners have. Um, armor thyroid is thyroid medication. It's a prescription thyroid medication that's made out of the thyroid glands of pigs, okay? So th pigs and humans have the same thyroid hormones. So they take pig thyroids, dry them out, make that into a medicine that contains both T4, the inactive thyroid version that I mentioned earlier, and T3. So T4 80%, T3 20% is in that, and you get a natural bioidentical thyroid hormone. Okay? That's okay. one way to get it. Nature Throid, Armor Thyroid, there's other brands. Okay? You can also get it compounded as a, as a uh, non-brand name generic. Although there's some shenanigans going on right now, uh, it's difficult to get the uh, generic. So, that's a natural bioidentical hormone. You can have a synthesized bioidentical hormone. Most of the estrogen products being used, estrone, estradiol, estriol, E1, E2, E3, those are the main estrogen hormones that men and women have. Those are synthesized from soy, from you know, other things, and through a chemical process are made to have the same chemical composition as a human estrogen. So, um, is one better than the other? Well, there are advantages and disadvantages, and some people feel better on one and some, on, some people on the other. Um, when you have the synthesized estrogen, for example, it can be something else, but let's say estrogen, they can really dial that in to be exactly the same dose every time because it's just the chemical. When you get a, 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 an armor thyroid, well, there's going to be some variation in that because the pigs, there's going to be natural variation in the pig's thyroid. And so that's going to have a little more variation in it. It's not going to be as standardized. But there are those who argue, and I think sometimes tr accurately, that they seem to have a better effect on some people than the synthesized ones do. So bottom line, we human beings are all individual. And some of us respond to one mm -hmm. and not the other. Um, so. so can I guarantee that... Can I can I know for sure that the testosterone that I'm taking is not a bioidentical hormone? No, it it, it is. So they've got a bioidentical testosterone with another um, uh, molecule added onto it, so that they can do the injection and it can be metabolized properly. Okay, yeah. 
Okay. So, yeah, so, so, so you can, yes, you can do that. Now, c you're doing this injection. It's, uh, it's, it's expensive. Maybe you're, no, it's cheap. Oh, is it? Yeah. You're in, and is your insurance paying? No, for it? no. It's oh. probably like 60 bucks for a two, uh, for a 10 milliliter vial of 200 milligrams of testosterone cypionate and not, I mean, I'm only doing a hundred milligrams a week. A week. So that lasts me, you know, months. Okay. Okay. Good, 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 good. So, um, now the thing that you would want to do in, 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 if I were to advise you is to do a urine hormone test to find out where is your testosterone? Where are your estrogens? What are these metabolites? You know, what's interesting that you said that my estradiol went through the roof when I, I was doing 200 milligrams a week at first. Yes. And my estradiol shot through the roof. So I took a, an estrogen blocker to get it back down. Okay. But then I was like, I don't want to take it. I'm, I'm trying to, I don't like taking medication. Yeah. So I dropped the dosage in half, the yep. testosterone in half and removed the estradiol. I still got to go get my labs to see where my estradiol is, but yes, I had to take an estrogen. Blocker. So that's, that's good. They, that you did that and, the, and they caught that. Cause yes, your testosterone, you were too much that, te that extra testosterone was getting converted into estradiol mm -hmm. and eh, warning, you know, that's a risk for prostate cancer right there. That's a big one. Okay. So you might want to flesh that out a little bit and do a, 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 a urine test so that you can see all the estrogens and all the metabolites and get a fuller, more three-dimensional picture of what's going on. So your estradiol went up, they put you on an aromatase inhibitor mm -hmm. and that blocks that. So you're not aromatizing the testosterone into estrogen, but you went, oh, let's be smart about this and drop the test, the, the dose and see how you do. Now, when you dropped the dose, did you continue to feel pretty good as far as the testosterone goes? Uh, I've, you know what's interesting? When I first started taking the injections, I noticed the difference in energy and everything. Mm -hmm. And after about, I don't know, a month, I felt the same as, as I did before. Ah. Pre-injection. Pre I felt the same. Oh. Sexually, energetically, everything. So you sort of went up. Up and then, and then right back down. Right back down and yeah. now you're just cruising along. Mm -hmm. I, okay. feel the same, I feel the same now as I did before, before I started did taking the injections. Before you testosterone injections. Yep. Now. And also my hemoglobin went, like it, it went up through the roof. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Your hematocrit. Yes. Hematocrit, which is the ratio of red blood cells to overall uh, blood or the ratio of red blood cells to, to serum. Which makes it a concern because of the viscosity. That's right. So you've got more and more red blood cells in that volume of blood. So your blood's getting thicker and uh -huh. thicker and thicker. And then it's dip more difficult to go through your veins. And that's not so good. Um, although there are studies that say, no, it's, a, it's, it's not such a problem. But What do you think? I think it's definitely a piece to look at. Okay. You want, here's what you want to do. Here's the guiding principle that's wise. The name of my clinic is Wise Medicine, right? So, we human beings have evolved over the eons, figuring it out through the process of evolution and the, some died off because they were not working out so good, how to have good balance and where do we make this right? So you wanna have, uh, you wanna do this within the boundaries of what's a healthy person. Okay, there are times where you want to push the envelope and you want to be the baseball player who hits the most home runs over the, <laughs> over the wall, right? And you're going to take a risk and do that. 
And are there consequences to doing that? Always, right? So if you wisely go, no, let's, let's do this in the parameters of a healthy young male, okay? Not Superman, <laughs> but a healthy young male and keep those levels in that zone, then you're, you're doing it wisely. Doesn't that make sense? It does, but a question along those lines. Uh, because testosterone does naturally drop off, what's your take on keeping those testosterone levels at uh, at like a, a an optimal level for a mid twenty year old person as as we age as men? Okay, so if you can do that and keep all the it's it's a juggling act, it's a symphony. You want to be orchestrating all these pieces and keeping that testosterone nice and high, making sure that your hematocrit's good, making sure estradiol's not going up too high. There's another factor which they may have looked at called sex hormone binding globulin. Uh -huh. I looked at that. It probably started going up on you too, did it? When you I don't were, recall. Okay, because that's something, it's kind of a, a feedback uh, uh, control on that testosterone. Whoa, we got too much testosterone, we got some sex hormone, sex hormone binding globulin binding to that active free testosterone and that neutralizes it so it's there but it's not doing anything okay so our body's constantly doing that and we want to we want to play like a jazz musician in that that orchestra without going too far off right mm -hmm. yeah Good. so but we can do that we can keep them at, a, at an optimal level it, it, without negative side effects, as long as we can look at that as a symptom. Look at all if we are wise about it and look at all the okay. pieces. Yes. Okay. So, um, you know, it just came through my mind. Let's go back off of this subject. We can come back around to it. I wanted to finish something up about prostate issues. Okay. And I want to use my own dad, who's no longer alive, died several years ago, but um, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer 15 years ago. Um, and folks who know PSAs, his PSA was like 77, which is huge. Normally a PSA is like up to four, maybe is high. So he had PSA off the chart, they did a biopsy. Oh, you got prostate cancer, we need to start chemotherapy, you know, or some radiation. He went, nope, he called me up and said, no, I've had a good life, Glenn. Um, I, I'm quite comfortable now. I don't want to uh, interfere with my quality of life. Are you comfortable with me just not doing that? And I said, sure. I respect your choice. And if you want to, he lived in Canada, where I'm from. And I said, if you want to come down and spend some time, I'll help you out. He said, okay. So he came down, worked him over, did my thing. Okay. Started with the parasites, looked at his semen, got rid of the, the stuff, did the therapies I do in my clinic, which are kind of cutting edge. And he went back to Canada and his prostate cancer was gone. Now, that was remarkable to his doctors. His PSA was back down to normal, but here's one of the fun pieces of the story. I said, Dad, you need to massage your prostate. He went, what are you, what are you talking about? What, what son? <laughs> What's that? And I said, I'm, I'm gonna get you something. And I got him this little vibrator. It's a prostate massage vibrator. It's got a little sort of curled fingertip on it so a man can put it up inside and it can make contact with the prostate and vibrate it and stimulate it, massage it. So I get him this little prostate vibrator and he goes, 
okay, <laughs> what am I doing with this? <laughs> and I got to hand it to my dad. He went through with it. And he was very skeptical about my career choice when I first started out on it. But he used that massager. We got rid of his stuff. And he got rid of that prostate cancer without doing it. Wow. Yeah. So I'm not saying, oh, yeah, guaranteed. Right. I will take care of every right. prostate cancer. But there are options out there that men need to be aware of for treatment when it gets going rough. But we men, starting at an early age, need to learn prostate hygiene, we could call it, right? Prostate health. How do we start taking care of our own prostates? Really, really important. Yeah. Something so. that just popped into my, uh, my mind that's completely off subject. What's your take on probiotics? Ah, okay. So um, I... I really respect, there's a doc out there, MD, triple board certified, internal medicine, endocrinology. Um, Zach Bush is his name. And he developed a product that is really great for healing um, leaky gut, uh, for tightening the, the uh, uh, tight junctions of the intestinal cells, and for establishing the, the scaffolding for a healthy microbiome. Okay, so the whole point of taking probiotics is to get a healthy microbiome. And when I use that word microbiome, basically that means the microbes or bacteria in any community. It could be a puddle, it could be a pond, it could be your body, it could be your intestines. So um, our human intestinal microbiome is composed of trillions of microbes. It's huge, mm -hmm. trillions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More microbes in our intestines than there are cells in our body. Yeah, we're okay? more bacteria than, than exactly. human. Exactly, uh -huh. yeah, which is, whoa, <laughs> yeah. you're just starting to discover that. Right, yeah. and there's more mind we're finding yes. located in the gut. Yes, the, awesome, right? Yeah. So the, the Human Microbiome Project is looking at that, and they're, what they're finding is just blowing away mm -hmm. people in medicine. Yeah. So trillions of cells, and composed of, in a healthy microbiome, maybe 20,000 different strains of microbes, okay? So it's very diverse, and its vitality comes from diversity and having the right microbes in there. So Zach Bush argues, and I think he's really accurate in this because it's a wise approach. Yeah, there's a place for taking probiotics for a period of time, a short period of time. If you take some antibiotics, estimates right now are taking a course of 10 days of antibiotics or five days of antibiotics will wipe out your microbiome for about two years, okay? So you start taking some probiotics to help speed up the process of trying to reestablish that. Okay, there's a place for that. However, long-term, not a good strategy. If you think about it, it's sort of like trying to impose a monoculture on a very diverse culture, not a mm. good long-term strategy. You've got this diversity, and you're going, hold on, here's 15 billion of this one microbe, this one probiotic. Here, have that. And that is not good for that diversity, mm. okay? Makes, makes a little sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, some people take the probiotics and they say, wow, that really helped me. It's okay. really helped me. Yeah. So then you start, you got to take a bigger, wiser look at this thing. Because intestinal health is a huge part of what I specialize in. As I said, I've specialized in treating parasites since 1980. 
And um, so if you've got an underlying parasite problem, and some people say everybody's got parasites. I've not seen that clinically, but I would say approaching 50% of people do, undiagnosed. We all have, humans have evolved with parasites just like all animals. We live with them. Some of us don't even have any symptoms. Some do. But they can upset that microbiome. And then bacteria start to grow, upset it a little bit. That probiotic you're taking is just helping you bounce that out so you can live with whatever's going on in there, maybe. Or maybe you're one of the 50% of folks who don't have anything, and it's just, oh, yeah, that's helping dial it in. I just want to uh, make, uh, or help clarify that it's a more complex picture. Everybody's focused on SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, and, and uh, uh, leaky gut, and, and uh, you know, the bacterial piece of this thing. There's a deeper parasite piece that happens. Also, candida albicongeast. Everybody's going, oh, I got yeast, and how do I get rid of that? And I tried, you know, I, I killed it off, but it comes back. Yeah, yeast is opportunistic. It is out there everywhere. It's in the room we're in right now. It's in you. It's in me. Normally, a healthy microbiome keeps it in check. Or our uh, immune system gets depleted, and it starts to take off. If we have a healthy microbiome, and we kill off that yeast, then it can't come back. If we haven't taken care of that microbiome, and we kill off the yeast, it's just going to come back like that. So what are some things we can do to help keep a healthy gut? One, you've got to test to find out if you've got parasites. Whoop. <laughs> parasites. Okay. Because um, if they're there, then everything else is undermined. Look at the bacteria too. And then all kinds of things. Eating a good diet. Eating naturally fermented uh, products. You know, some sauerkraut. Kimchi. Oh, yeah. All that stuff is really good. Yeah. What about yogurt, Greek yogurt? Um, so, organic, yeah, grass-fed. So, so Greek yogurt, so the, the microbe that's in that yogurt is not, it's not going to uh, thrive in the, in the human intestinal tract. It will be beneficial and move through. It doesn't stay in there. So you've got to keep taking it. Okay. So great. However, some people have sensitivities to dairy. And I'm that can be a problem. Yeah. Okay. So maybe it would be better for you to not have yogurt, but get some culture from another place. Okay. So sauerkraut, kimchi, sauerkraut, kimchi, real dill pickles, all of the fermented products that are not made, um, fake fermented products. They just put pickle, uh, cucumbers in and add vinegar. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some salt. All right. You know, some spices. <laughs> okay. And that tastes sort of like a dill pickle, a real dill pickle. They take those fresh cucumbers, um, put some salt and water in there and let it ferment over a period of time and bottle that. And then you've got the real culture in there. So there's that. How can we know? Um, how can we tell? How can you tell if it's if, real or not? Uh -huh. The real stuff will be in the. It will be refrigerated at the store. If you go to, any, you you don't see them so often in the in the larger chains, uh, regular supermarkets. But if you go to natural grocers or Whole Foods or Sprouts, they will have in the cooler different pickles. And I have my favorites, but pickles in the cooler section that are naturally fermented. And it'll say right on there that it's naturally fermented. So other than fermented foods, is there anything else as far as diet that we could? Uh, other than elimination. Now you're getting into a big topic. Okay. Okay. So um, how uh, do you want to go off into diet or, or stay in the sex and desire and hormone 
area. Let's that, touch on it. Let's if okay, we if we can. Touch on it. Great debate out there. There are vegans. There are uh, uh, you know the 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 other side of the equation. The ketogenic diet. The, uh-huh. You know. So. Um, it is. Let me let me be discreet, but put it this way. It is difficult in our society to be a healthy vegan, and I don't see many of them. Okay. Um, not that it can't be done by someone who knows what they're doing, but when I get together with colleagues who I respect and who are doing good medicine, almost all of us agree that vegans are the most unhealthy group of people we see. Okay? So, why? Are they getting enough complete protein? Often not. Are they getting enough... uh, essential fatty acids from good fat often not yeah there's other pieces sometimes they don't get enough b12 that's hard to get in a, in a vegan diet so then if you flip over to the other side um, just people eating a regular diet people are eating way too many carbohydrates in our society it's a huge problem mm-hmm. and that includes not just the sweets the potatoes the starchy root vegetables the grains the bread the pasta the tortillas um, the, the fruit, on and on and on, okay? And it is a huge problem that, let's tie that into sexual uh, performance and satisfaction. Um, as carbohydrates increase, our society has become more and more uh, predisposed to prediabetes and diabetes. What happens when you get diabetes? There's inflammation in blood vessels. There's restriction of circulation to the periphery. Peripheral neuropathy. Uh, you know, people eventually get ulcerations and gangrene and they lose their foot. You know, that's the extreme end. But far in advance of that, those blood vessels, those little blood vessels, which are feeding our genitals, both men and women, are also being compromised. And that's, as we talked about earlier, a key piece of sexual performance, sexual satisfaction. So, just the carbohydrate piece of our diet. People need to start to go, no, no, no. Let's, let's move into a diet that's more looking at getting a, a good quality protein, lots of vegetables, lots of good fats. What are some good fats? So, grass-fed cow butter is a great fat, And even people who are sensitive to dairy can often eat butter, and especially if they turn that into ghee or clarified butter, because all of the stuff that Uh normally causes allergies is out of there. And if you get grass-fed ghee... The milk proteins are removed. Gone. Yep. So that grass-fed butter or ghee is much higher in omega-3 fatty acids than regular. So that's good. So that's a great thing, and you can use that in many ways. Um, my favorite vegetable source of fat is hemp seed oil. So it's the oil squeezed out of hemp seeds, which doesn't have any, there's no THC. I do that. I do that seeds. every morning. Yeah. Isn't it great stuff? Yeah. Green, beautiful green yes, color. Rich. And it's got this nutty flavor. Uh-huh. Best source of omega-3 in the plant world. Really? Best, best ratio of three to six. Okay. Great thing. Great thing to have. So what else? Um, 
for cooking avocado oil, highest burn point? Yes. So on that point, I've, I've been in a lot of debates with people who, who say that saturated, this whole saturated fat debate, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, saturated, yeah. It's, it's, it's the saturated fat that's the biggest, largest contributing factor to heart disease. And I go back with like, no, it's the carbohydrates. Where do you sit with that? I, I'm with you. I, I eat such a high fat diet. High saturated fat, coconut yeah. oil, grass-fed beef there you go. all yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. I, my, my blood's perfect. Yeah, exactly. So that goes way back. Back in the day, there was this whole thing. Oh, yeah, uh, high carbohydrate, low fat diet. That's the healthy diet. I don't see it. It just is not panning out in terms well, of... Well, evolutionarily, it doesn't add up. Right. You can't see it in our, yeah. in our history yeah, of evolution. Yeah. yeah, so I'm with you. Coconut oil, great. Um, olive oil, great, but there you're not getting the threes, you're getting more six and nine, but that's really valuable too. So, um, I'm, fish oil. I'm, I'm with fish oil. Great. Now let's talk about fish oil okay. for a minute. I do Nordic, I do Nordic natural. Nordic naturals is good, but my favorite is biotics research. Okay. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Um, fish oil. So these giant tankers are cruising the world and they get the fish oil, and they're usually out to sea for a year. And then they get to port where the refinery is and they refine that fish oil, and um, then it's put into capsules, okay? Um, So when that oil gets to port after a year, it has majorly oxidized, and they have to really refine it to get it good. Biotics Research, their boats are out for a couple of weeks, and they pull into port and do the process right then before it has a chance to oxidize. And that is better for health. So there are people out there going, oh, fish oil, eh, no, it's not good. And others going, it's good. If I, I think the oxidization piece is the missing link. So that's why I'm a real proponent of biotics research. Okay. Because they have oil in capsules. They have a bottle of just oil. I literally drink that oil. Now, I have to confess... I was born in Nova Scotia. <laughs> when I was a kid, we were given a spoonful of what? Cod liver oil every day. And that's pretty tough stuff. <laughs> right? Here's another great story. So my dad grew up in Nova Scotia too. Back in the day, his best friend, when he was just a kid, had an uncle who was a fisherman out at Peggy's Cove, a, a real rough fishing town. They used to go out there in the summer. These old fishermen would fish for cod, clean the cod, throw all the cod livers into this big barrel because they were sent off to turn into cod liver oil. Those fishermen, as they went by the cod liver bar- barrel, they just go out, grab a raw cod liver and eat one of those raw cod livers right out of the fish. And those guys could row it into the Atlantic Ocean in the winter. They were tough, strong guys. My dad said it was a real test of when you were a man when you could finally eat one of those cod livers out of the barrel. So fish oils are really great. Krill oil... Um, but you want to really do your homework to find out what is a really pure, good one that hasn't been oxidized. So we could go down a rabbit hole on nutrition. Forever. But, but, but yeah. just, to, just to go back to the original question of gut health. Yes. And, and creating a healthy gut biome. Yeah. Adding the fermented foods. Fermented foods. And what I'm hearing is just eating a really healthy diet. So, um, yeah, and we just started to flesh out a little bit about that. There are foods that are really beneficial for human health um, that bump it up a notch. I'm, I love various nuts, and we could talk about nuts for a while, but miso is a for, 
fermented soybean product from Japan. I love it. Umaboshi. What about people who are concerned with the whole estrogen factor of, of soy and the miso product? If you get organic miso made from non-GMO soy and you're eating, miso is a fermented soy product, so all of that, it, look at, the Japanese have been using that for centuries and not had problems, okay? I don't think it's an issue. Okay. I really don't think it's an issue. I think the issues start to rise when you're using um, GMO'd, non-organic soybeans and you're overdoing it and you're not processing them. The Japanese figured out how to process them to make them more useful. Okay. So, um, what else? Umaboshi. If, it, oh, if you have not explored umaboshi, umaboshi is a Japanese pickled plum. And you can get, so what they do is they take these green plums and pickle them. And the plums are kind of a magenta color when they are done. You can get the paste and you can put that on cucumber or, or, or corn on the cob and it tastes like heaven. The, the fluid that comes, the liquid that comes off those fermented plums is called uh, ume vinegar. And it's salty and sour. Oh, it's so good. And it's good for you. So how, does the firm, how do the fermented products help establish a healthy gut biome? The, the more diverse uh, we have... Uh, so are we adding bacteria with yeah, the... Yeah, yeah. There's what's... microbes in there that are just causing this lovely diversity. Okay. Okay? So there, if we want to go deeper into this, there are um, folks who are doing fecal implants, okay? Yeah, and, I've heard about those. And, and that's something we got to be... Re I'll, I'll just mention that because that is a... I think there's real potential there, okay? okay. Because... Um, there is a way of seeding uh, microbes that are not there. You take a healthy person and seed some microbes. That, there's real potential there, but great risk. There's a doc up in Santa Fe who's been into it for years. She had a young guy who had never been immunized, um, had never taken any antibiotics, and she was using him as her uh, person that she got these uh, fecal transplants from and doing it on lots of patients. And I was talking to a doc once, and I said, I'm real uneasy. There could be parasites in there. She's never tested for parasites. And he looked at me and went, I thought the same thing. I sent one of the fecal samples off, and sure enough, that little boy had parasites. So, again, unknown, those parasites were being spread around. People need to be careful about what's going on. Mm -hmm. The technology is not ready for prime time. Okay? So... Going back to the testosterone, if I were to come to you and wanted to revisit my testosterone situation, I know that we'd look at everything, but just on the testosterone alone, what would be the source if you were to give that to me? What would that look like? Uh, so basically you're getting um, a bioidentical synthesized testosterone that's a powder, um, pure bioidentical testosterone that's been synthesized, and I don't know currently what it's being, I, I couldn't tell you, to be honest with you, I could find out what it's being synthesized from, what plant. That's plant. okay. And then that's added to a cream, which is the, the vehicle, okay? Um, and that cream, uh, you can have, what did you say you were, you were, what percentage were you using when you were doing the... the uh, 8%? 8%. Yeah, but, but I was doing eight pumps. Eight pumps. So... <laughs> You can get up to about 20% where it's really absorbed well into the cream and can be 
used properly, okay? Beyond that, it's a little tricky. Maybe you could push it to 30%, but not so good, okay? So you could go up to 20% so that you're using, you're having to use less of it, and then you start applying it to the mucous membranes so it's absorbed way better than how you were using it. So what I would say is, one, give yourself a little break from the testosterone injections to let your cells kind of normal out. Because doing that, your, your receptor sites are like, they've been bombarded with testosterone for a while, okay? So I would say, hey, go off the testosterone for just a few weeks and clear the, clear the space, and then try the anal application of the, the cream at a higher level, okay? And see how you're doing. Now... And the cream comes from you? Yeah, well, I, I do the prescription. It comes from the compounding pharmacy. Also, oh, the compounding pharmacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah. I, do, I do a prescription, fax that over okay. to the pharmacy or give it to you, and you take it to the pharmacy, and they fill it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't do the, the compounding. Yeah. Okay? okay? So that would be an approach. But yes, within the, the whole context of a wise medicine approach to looking at this, let's look at all the other pieces. Right. Has something been missed here? So, for example... Um, Man came to me a couple of years ago. Uh, he was 40 years old, maybe late 30s, I think. Um, worked at Sandia Labs, major security kind of high-end guy. Had come from the East Coast, Washington. And he goes, you know, my libido's down. Uh, my mojo's down. I just don't have the drive I used to have. We looked at his hormones using urine. Sure enough, his testosterone was in the tank. But not only that... DHEA from the, from the uh, adrenal glands in the tank. Cortisol from the adrenal glands in the tank. So I got him a prescription for um, the bioidentical testosterone to, to be applied through the uh, rectal means. And also a product to help strengthen his, not a, a prescription product, but a product to help uh, boost his adrenal function and production of cortisol that has some adrenal glandular in it and some adaptogens and other uh, vitamins to help support the adrenal glands and get his cortisol back up as well as some DHEA. He came back for his refill six months later and said, oh my goodness, I feel like I could be an adult film star and at work I am so on fire, my motivation's there, I'm mm. back. Mm. And there's the big deal about testosterone, which we really need to cover. Yep, everybody goes, oh, testosterone, that's about sex drive, about libido, mental well-being. Yes. You probably noticed Depression, that, right? Depression, yeah. Just all of a sudden, your, your brain's alive again and mm. motivation. You wake up going, I want to do... I'm going. Now, testosterone not only helps with brain, it helps with muscle tone, heart health. So it's, it's a really, for both men and women, right. not just men. Women need it too. And so that's a huge piece. So this guy said, yep, in terms of my sexuality, I'm on fire. And at work, my brain is on, I'm going. And it was a combination of not just the, the sex hormones, but the adrenal hormones too. Okay. Now, one side note here. When he came in, I said, look, how is your wife? Is her, is her libido good? She, he went, nope. She is the same as me. We're both down. I said, we need to check her too, or it's not going to be good for your marriage. And that's the thing couples need to remember. It takes two. And if 
if, if you're not both synced, it can be really tough on a relationship. Yeah. So she came in, did the testing, and sure enough, she also was similar in terms of her hormones. I gave her a prescription for her bioidentical hormones. She went, nope, I'm not doing that. When he came back a year later, I said, so, how are you doing? He said, I've been great. I said, how's the marriage? She said, we got divorced. She, he, he just went, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm alive, I'm good, and she was not doing it, and on he went. Huh. So it's something that couples need to be aware of. This is a dance you want to do together. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, really important. Really important. You're the relationship guy, right? Right. right. That's so important for relationships. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, we're going to need to do, and I wanted to talk about sacred sexuality. Uh-huh. Tell me a little, just briefly, because I want to do a separate show with you on just that. Okay. Um, but what has, what, uh, give, give our listeners just a, a little bit of insight into your experience in that world. What is sacred sexuality? So. From your perspective. <laughs> <laughs> in two sentences or less, right? <laughs> you got 10 minutes. All right. So, um. Sacred sexuality has evolved in traditional cultures of the world for centuries. And we in America are sort of just becoming aware of the tip of that iceberg. And it's really exciting because our tradition here in America is somewhat prudish when it comes to sexuality. And uh, it's time... Or, or it's just completely sexual and there's no heart involved. Exactly. Separation yep. There. yep, yep, yep. And one could say that the, the, the free access to porn has only aggravated that Absolutely. Problem, you know? On the one hand, maybe there's some advantage to being a little bit more aware of the diversity of sexuality, but porn is not focused on taking that sexuality as a giant, beautiful energy source for connecting intimately, intimately mm-hmm. with another. And like you say, just taking it up to the heart. For transformation. To, exactly. And consciousness exploration. Yes. Using it as Conscious a Conscious expansion. Yep. And so that's been my thing. I have been, in my life, if I had to summarize who I am, I am a spiritualist. I am a spiritual being and searching for that spiritual connection and exploring that spiritual connection has what has driven my life, my career, and what, what inspired me. I said earlier on in the program, I was called to a career in energy medicine. What resu- I'll tell you the story of that. I'll share that okay. story because it's part of the sacred sexuality. I was a real spiritual seeker when I was young. I excelled. I, I, I was a shy kid, but really smart, really great athlete. Seemed like I had it all, but inside I was going, I'm missing something. I'm not connected somehow. And so I was just everywhere. Was it Christianity? Was it Zen Buddhism? Was it Taoism? Was it yoga? Whatever. Was it psychedelic drugs? Uh-huh, okay? yeah, I right. came of age in the 60s. Right, okay? right. I, whatever it was, I explored. And by the time I was 22, maybe I was a little arrogant, but I went, I'm getting nowhere. I was really frustrated. Here's what I did. I totally surrendered. I wrapped myself in a sleeping bag in December, sat in this big chair, got myself a gallon of water, and said, okay, I surrender. 
I am not moving until I get the answers and the experiences I need. Sat there. Four days later, I had the most profound spiritual experience. Full-on enlightenment, Satori kind of thing. Direct communion with God. And all of my questions were answered. At the time, I was studying to be an artist. And I was shown this light path that involved mastering energy medicine. I had no idea what energy medicine was. It was the early 70s. And it was shown to me as a great life path with one caveat. If I chose that path, never ever teach anything unless you know it's the truth. Mm. And then I was just sort of me again, only I wasn't shy anymore. <laughs> and off I went to find out what's going on with this, with this, this energy medicine. And so that whole process led me to this career that I'm in. And along the way, sexuality started to emerge as a huge chunk of that energy medicine. In traditional oriental medicine, there is a long tradition through Taoism and beyond of sexuality as a means for physical health, spiritual health, emotional health, and essential for human beings to connect. You can look at tantric practices from uh, further into Asia and, and India. Um, yeah, not here in the United States in the tantric circles like that it's being taught. Yes. The majority of it. Yeah, yeah. There's some shenanigans yes. going on yeah. out there, okay? Right. And yeah. people are being hurt. Uh-huh, yes. Okay? Okay. 100% agree with that. Yeah. yeah. And not, not that it's all that way, but you, it's once prevalent. again, you know, the consumer needs to be so careful because there's, there's some stuff out there that is not good, and there's some stuff that's awesome. So, um, yes, oriental medicine has this long tradition of of sacred sexuality, of sexuality not just for sacred means, but for health too. Mm -hmm. And so, mm. um, real quick question on that. Yes. So, are you rooted in a specific practice, or, or just an you've uh, this is an amalgamation, and you've come up with your own in terms of sacred sexuality? Yes. No, exploring the 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 juicy pieces of each of these and putting them together. So what it's not I, just how Taoism nope. or... Uh, uh, and that's the same for me in medicine, you know? Nice, man. Nice. You know, it's like... Nice. Yes, there are all these beautiful traditions, but they're also colored by the social, political, uh, religious restrictions of the day. Right. They all are. We, every one of them has uh -huh. their beautiful parts and their restriction parts. Okay? Yes, yes, yes. And... So where do you, how do you coax the, the real juicy stuff out of there and go, okay, the, the rest I'm going to let go and use this to be part of it. Um, over the last few years, I've been involved in studying Kwadoshka, which is uh, the sacred sexual practices of uh, the uh, 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 Mesoamerican uh, native people of, of uh, America. So, um, and that is another rich tradition that is just so fulfilling and to be involved in the workshops where people are studying that and to see these people just start to come together and free up in terms of their ability to interact with each other it's amazingly beautiful. I think to have a show completely based off sacred sexuality with two men having that discussion I think it'd be very potent Absolutely. very powerful let's do that yeah I would love to do that because you know here's men we have so, we have so many resources available to us. Back 
in the 90s, I came across a book called The Multi-Orgasmic Man. I'm mm -hmm. sure you've read it, right? Mm -hmm. And I went, oh, and started to just from the book study that and master that. It is such a tool that men can develop to be able to have orgasms without ejaculating so that you can just build and build and build that energy with your partner. Oh my goodness, that alone, yeah. right? Yes. It, yeah. Yes, we have this association with ejaculation equals orgasm. Exactly. And that is yes. a very limited understanding of what orgasm is. And that's come up in quite a few shows, actually. Has it really? But this is the first one that I've done a show with another man, and we've discussed that. So ah. a lot of people that are guys say, no, that's not true, and you're the only guy saying that. Well, hello. No, no, no. <laughs> From a very informed perspective, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know what's really interesting? It's eerie to me. I've had a lot of, in these discussions that I've been having with people, a lot of similar paths. I've seen a lot of similarities in the paths. Uh -huh. And the water thing with you, I mean, I almost dropped out of my seat because I got to a point in my life where I experienced the same thing. And I said, I'm going to fill up two water jugs and I'm going to go out into the mountains and uh -huh. I'm going to sit there under a tree, and uh -huh. I know I could survive probably for a couple weeks on just water, yeah. and I'm going to sit there until I get an answer. And I had a near-death experience before I was able to go, before I was able to go out into the woods. But what the hell, man? It's a trip. Yeah. That's awesome. You and I have that, that same we got that, that man. resonance. Good. Beautiful. I knew, yeah. I knew so that. So we, we can definitely take this somewhere else. Because... Our, our, our brothers need this yes, information. Yes, Because I hear you. When I first started, you know, getting into this multi-orgasmic thing without ejaculating, and I'd be out playing golf with some buddies, and, and I'd say, dudes, they would, like, back away right. and go, whoa, right. hold right. on. This, right. what, what's wrong right. with you? you, you th this is weird. No, yeah. you know, it was like, what? Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> yeah. There's the sexual space that people are tapping into is like you said, the tip of the iceberg, even if they think they're having great sex. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, I agree. That, it, we could... We We're going have, to. All right. We're good, going to. Good, good. So if anyone wants to... First of all, is there anything else coming up for you you'd like to bring up before I point people to where to find you? Um, let me think. Nope, uh, nothing, nothing that comes to mind off the top of my head. I've sort of talked a lot here. It's, it's maybe time to... It's been very informative. Wind it down. been huh? very informative. So if anyone wants to find you, where can they go? Um, my website is drglennwilcox.com, D-R-G-L-E-N-N, two N's, W-I-L-C-O-X.com. I'll warn you, it's a little antiquated, uh, about 12 years old. My son helped me build it, and I haven't messed with it for a while, but I'm in the process of building a new one, but it'll get you there. They can call the clinic, 505-771-4998. And, uh, and I'll link those below. Okay, great. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I do a very broad holistic practice. Certainly all of this stuff is, uh, uh I consult with people across the country. That was going to be a question. Yeah. yeah. And in Canada. So you know, what do you typically consult on? On all kinds of things, but when they're long, long distance, um, certainly the, the parasite thing, it's huge. I probably do it better than anybody in the country. So I'm doing that with people in Canada, America, everywhere. Um, the hormone thing. I consult with lots of people about hormones. Lyme disease. We could do a whole segment on Lyme disease. Yeah, I'm I had a friend that dealt with that. Amazing effect of uh, 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 results with Lyme disease. Um, I, I've written an article sort of exposing my own experience with Lyme disease and that of my sister with like dramatic turnaround results. Mm -hmm. And 
diagnosing Lyme disease can be so difficult, but the doc in Africa that I send the specimens to is brilliant at being able to identify it in blood. So um, I consult with a lot of people around the country about Lyme disease and how to deal with that because that's a tough one that's really exploded in our society and is crippling lots of folks, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to. A lot of the people I see are people with really complex, difficult health histories that no one has been able to help them with. My job is to get in there and go, okay, strategically, step by step, let's start looking at what's being missed and help lead them through the maze. I'm going to come to you in the near future with, the, with my hormone levels and to look into that. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Man, it's been such a pleasure meeting you and, and having you on. This has been great, and I look forward to the next one. All right, we're good. Gonna, we're going to go deep. It. Yeah, deeper and deeper. Deeper and deeper. Thank you, Damon. Thank you. You just got done listening to The Relationship Coach Podcast. I hope that you found it interesting, entertaining, and helpful. And speaking of help, if you'd like some help finding and navigating the highest romantic relationship on your path, head on over to therelationshipcoach.com. That's one word, therelationshipcoach.com.